Last week, I made an effort to uh, steadfastly keep the focus on where it must always begin and end, and that is on God's absolute sovereignty over all things, and specifically over us as his church, his creation, the body of Christ. To capture, just to recap a little bit, the most essential point that we talked about last time, when it comes to this critically important matter of spiritual gifts, we should stop agonizing over questions that God hasn't seen fit to answer. The Holy Spirit is the one who alone determines every gift, gives every gift, to, gives gifts to each believer, and puts those gifts to work by His power through the indwelling work of, of His Spirit in us. And we saw Paul drive this point home without compromise in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. Uh, and he said, verse 4, he said, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And then he said, And there are diversities of workings, but the same God who works all things in all. The one who's doing all the work is God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. You don't need a comprehensive job description if you're not the one doing the work. You don't need a playbook for determining and nailing down exactly what your specific gift or gift is or gifts are if you're not the one making those gifts useful. Any more then the disciples needed an advanced tutorial on what to do on the day of Pentecost because it wasn't them doing it. I guarantee you those guys were as surprised as anybody at what happened. What we should focus on is those aspects of our assignment that God has made clear. And if you want to know the, the very essence of that, read 1 Corinthians 13, the next chapter after the one we looked at last week. It's all about love. And, of course, Jesus made it clear that love, the love of God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and the love of our neighbor as ourself is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. If we're not clear on how to keep that assignment on love, it's not because we don't have enough information. <laughs> the Bible is full of what it looks like when God's people love God and love others. There's no guessing uh, necessary. And if we're fully engaged in that glorious assignment, uh, then we'll be far too busy to worry about how the Holy Spirit does what he does. Now, I want to clarify this because there was some question after last week's message. I am not saying that God never clues us in about our gifts. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I wouldn't be up here if I weren't reasonably confident that God had, had given me the gift of teaching. But you know what? I don't ever remember having to devote my own energy and effort to finding that out. I'd say most people who have been serving the Lord diligently over the long haul have a very good idea, at least about what their enduring gifts are. We said last week that perhaps God changes those up some according to the need that he sets before us. 
Over time, the feedback that you get from other trusted brothers and sisters will probably smoke out uh, what it is that God is doing through you in the lives of other people most effectively. And that should tell you something about the gifts that he has given you. Those are very reasonable things to, to conclude. But the bottom line is, if you are busy loving and serving God and men and proclaiming the truth from grateful hearts, the Holy Spirit will take care of the whole gifts issue. He will faithfully put to use the gifts that he has given to you, even if you're not sure yet what they are. So let's focus on our assignment. He'll get his assignment right. No problem with that. This morning the second and final installment on the topic of spiritual gifts, we're going to talk about the miraculous nature of the unity that God has created in the body of Christ, the church. The history of men and nations is filled with proof that fallen human beings prefer division over unity. Just watch the national news on any given evening and you'll see in living, color, in living color man's tendency toward division. In any context in which you put a bunch of people together, they will completely without prompting begin to divide into smaller groups <laughs> based on perceived common ground with others uh, within the larger group. The first thing that tends to divide is physical appearance and thus race. It's the easiest thing to differentiate. And then once people actually start trying to talk to each other, they divide over language. In fact, that was actually God's purpose at Babel, to divide people over language. Even when race and language and the basic elements of shared culture are found to be in common, people will still find other reasons to divide. You can take two groups of young men who have a whole lot in common. They may have the same color skin. Their parents might make the same amount of money. Their houses might be in the same neighborhoods. But one group knows the names of every member of the top ten screamo bands, and the other group only talks about the latest modifications that they've uh, made to their crew cab pickup trucks. And those two groups probably don't spend a whole lot of time together, even though they have quite a lot of other things in common. The fact is, uh, we love to be comfortable. (laughs) And since social interaction is inherently hazardous, we work very hard at finding people that are as much like us as possible. And that cuts down on the riskiness of interacting with other people. And the historical narrative found in the Bible presents the very same tendency toward division in generation after generation of mankind, including God's own covenant people in both Testaments. God called Israel a people set apart to him. Steadfastly, he, he called them to steadfastly avoid following after the false gods and the abominable practices that characterized all the nations that surrounded them. They even had dietary laws that would insulate them from fellowship with people who did not 
come from from them who were not of the same beliefs and practices. At the same time, however, God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests who would faithfully bring the knowledge of the one true God to all the nations. Israel largely turned their back on that commission because they liked being special. Jonah's the poster child for that mindset. Rather than fulfilling their commission from God to draw Gentiles into the knowledge of God and into the worship of God, they hoarded for themselves the things, the wonderful and gracious things that God had given to them. Things like the scriptures, the covenants, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. And that didn't just happen in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went into the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. And he read from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61, about the year of release. And the initial reaction of the crowd, the Jewish crowd in that synagogue, was that they were amazed at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. But in the very next instant, they were trying to move him toward the edge of a cliff so they could throw him off. And the only thing that happened that made the difference between those two attitudes is he talked about how Elijah and Elisha, two Old Testament prophets, healed Gentiles. That's all it took. Jews don't like, didn't like Gentiles. And when someone treats you, if you're on the other side of that, when someone treats you as an unclean outsider, a lower class undesirable, it doesn't exactly warm your heart toward them. So Gentiles didn't particularly care for Jews either. And the thought of ever in any context bringing those two groups together to be peers, equals, was unthinkable to both. And yet one of the most prominent and repeated themes of Paul's ministry and writings is the fact that at the cross, Jesus destroyed the dividing wall between those two groups in all of its aspects. And he made, he made Jew and Gentile into one. And there are many passages in Paul's epistles that speak of that miraculous work of unity, but none more directly than Ephesians chapter 2. And if you'll turn there, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to stick with the outline on the slides here, so go to Ephesians 2 and look at verse, starting at verse 11. This is pretty familiar. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is uh, created in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then it says that he made peace between these two groups and he made them into one household of God. Two into one. And he says he made them into one new man. Paul is talking about a miracle of the highest order here. This is not something that people could make happen. 
But it is not only Jews and Gentiles whom Jesus has united in spite of radical points of division. It is men and women from every nation, every race of mankind, every economic station in life, every set of personal preferences. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29 for a minute. First, Paul says, before faith came, we were kept into custody under the law. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. But then he says, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then look at what he says in verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Go over a couple of books over to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 9. Colossians 3, verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In short, every kind of human being that God has created has been brought together into a new creation of God, a new unity that would be utterly impossible to achieve by any other means in any other context. And that new creation is the church, the body of Christ. The impossibility of such unity for men left to their own devices cannot be overstated you really don't have to look very far to see that this is an amazing thing that God has accomplished. Men are experts at division and idiots at unity. But our God, the three-in-one, has known everything there is to know about unity ever since eternity passed. He's very, very good at it. It matters to God brothers and sisters, that within this body we have people of many different races and backgrounds who have come from many different places, who have different musical preferences and different hobbies and different things that they love to read. It matters a lot to God that with all those differences we are here together as one body. And if there's anything in your way of thinking anything in your personal or family tradition that draws distinctions where God has destroyed them, that's a problem. If that happens to be true, it needs some thought and some prayer on your part. What is it that makes us one? (laughs) What is this new reality that destroys distinctions of race and religion and tradition and gender and money 
and brings people from every walk of life together into one household of God. Galatians 3.26 says it is that we have become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The cause of our unity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the new man in whom we are united is Jesus Christ. All who belong to Christ are peers with one another in the most important and pervasive way that people can ever be peers. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. We have the same identity. We have the same mission. We have the same destiny. We have the same inheritance. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says we have the same body the same spirit, the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is a lot of points of unity, and all of them are exceedingly powerful. All of them make any point of disunity fade into nothingness. And so when we, when we raise them back out of that nothingness and we allow them to divide we are standing firmly and squarely in opposition to the God who has made us one. And the ongoing practical outworking of unity in the redeemed community of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, is the result of just one fundamental point of unity. And that is that all of us who belong to Christ have the same spirit living within us. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, after I mentioned it last week, after Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, first passage we already read, there are varieties of gifts, but one Spirit varieties of ministries, but one Lord. There are different workings, but only one who's doing the work. The Holy Spirit accomplishes this miraculous unity through the diversity that he himself has brought about. And this is where, to me, it's just amazing. See, it's not merely the natural points of diversity between people that this is all about. It's not about race and tradition and economics. Those, it's very valuable, very amazing that God has brought us together in spite of those things. But it's the God-engineered diversity that really makes this amazing. Diversity that the Holy Spirit has brought about by giving different gifts to different believers. The diversity that exists within the body of Christ is not a side effect of God's design. It's the very heart of God's design. It drives us toward unity because it makes us interdependent. We simply cannot carry on the ongoing work of Jesus Christ on this earth unless we do it together because God made us different so that we would need each other to do that work. It has to be one body not a whole bunch of individual saints. 
And another amazing thing about that is that because that's so different than the way the world prefers to do things, it points the world toward Christ. By this they shall know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Not just the love, but the work that you do together as one. Whether we act as one or not, the wonderfully inescapable truth is that we are one because God made us one as soon as he brought us into the family of Jesus Christ. We are united by one Holy Spirit and the unity of the body is has two facets. One we've been talking about already, and that is God's sovereign control over the whole thing. He's the one doing all the work, creating all the unity. But the second piece of this is our responsibility, and body unity is our responsibility. How can we possibly fail to act as one if God has made us one, and it's all his work? How can we possibly mess up something that is that dependent upon God alone? Ultimately, the answer, I believe, is that we can't. If God can use Balaam's donkey, he can use you. Whether you like it or not. Whether you're cooperating or not. If God's covenant program did not get sidetracked when Abraham lied about his wife's identity and she ended up in the harem of Pharaoh, the mother of the covenant child in the harem of Pharaoh, if Abraham couldn't mess that up, beloved, you cannot mess up what God intends to do through you. It's amazing that Abraham came out of Egypt more blessed than he went in. And it wasn't because of him. But the inevitable tension here comes in when we move from talking about the sovereign working of God to talking about our responsibility before God with regard to this whole matter of unity. And our way of, to our way of thinking, those two vantage points just bump into each other. They seem contradictory. But they're not. <laughs> our responsibility is the edification of the body. Uh, before that passage that's up there, I wanted to mention Philippians 2.13. It says, Paul says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But it's crystal clear from Scripture that God's redeemed people don't always submit to his good pleasure. They don't always share his will. If it were always true that we did, the New Testament would be a lot shorter than it is. <laughs> because you could eliminate pretty much all of the exhortations and corrections and rebukes. Those are all there because we do not always will and work for God's good pleasure. And why is that? It's because God chose to make sanctification a process. That's his, that's his doing, not ours. And from our vantage point, it's a lifelong process and it's a cooperative process. As soon as you say the word cooperative, lots of, lots of Christians wince. <laughs> but this is the way God chose to do it. 
If we resist the work that God is doing in us and through us, it takes longer and it moves along more slowly, not to mention it's a lot more painful for us. The stories of that being the case are all over the Bible. If, on the other hand, we embrace God's agenda for our lives, sanctification proceeds, using Andrew's word this morning, it proceeds apace. It moves quickly. We get the joyful experience of being put to eternal use willingly instead of unwillingly. But who's doing all the work in either case? God. And these things are true both at the individual level and at the corporate level. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. And he says, Let all things be done for edification. There is the heart of our responsibility, of our assignment from God when it comes to body unity, and that is to do all things for edification. What if we're not doing that? What if we as a body are not really cooperating with what God has told us to do and what he's at work to do? Or what if some are cooperating and some are not? That's the problem that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 14. He talks about spiritual gifts that are being used to build up individuals rather than to build up, edify the whole body. When gifts are used as a catalyst for division rather than for unity. Now, chapter 14, if you pay attention to the wording in it, is very clearly talking about what happens when we come together as the body of Christ. It talks about the meeting of the church and how that meeting is to be conducted. Now, what it tells us certainly impacts other contexts in, body, in the life of the body of Christ, but this chapter is talking about what happens when we come together. And the overriding principle in the chapter is that one right there, that everything we do is to edify the whole. It's a long chapter. There's a lot of detail in it, and we're not going to look at all that detail, not by a long shot. But I want to point out a couple of things. First, Paul does something in this chapter that is very unusual for Paul. Most of the time when Paul is exhorting and telling us how we are to live out the sanctified life, he talks in generalities. He talks about laying aside the old man and malice and strife and anger and all greed, all those things, and putting on the new man with humility and patience and love and forbearance. In this chapter, he gets real specific about his instruction. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 26 to 33, he says, for instance, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three. And each in turn, not at the same time. And let one interpret. And he goes on on the subject of prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. Don't talk over each other. For you can 
all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted. That level of detail tells us something about the importance of what Paul is telling us here. When a guy who isn't a micromanager starts micromanaging, you can be sure that whatever it is he's micromanaging is important and it's prone to being messed up. The Corinthians were putting undue emphasis on the exercise of certain more sensational spiritual gifts that benefited individuals rather than benefiting the whole body. The most, this one that is most specifically mentioned in the chapter is tongues. And the one that is contrasted with it is prophecy. But guys, we would be remiss if we looked at this chapter and thought that it was about tongues and prophecy. This chapter is about either edifying individuals or edifying the body. That's what it's about. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12.31, earnestly desire the greater gifts... And in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. All of the verbs in those statements are plural. He's talking to y'all, not to you. Paul is not saying, Joe, if you don't have the gift of prophecy, you should probably ask God to give it to you because it's way better than the gift he gave you. That's exactly the kind of thinking that Paul just shot down in most of chapter 12. What I believe Paul is saying is when you come together as a body, earnestly desire that the gifts that build up the body will be those that are best represented. And the corollary is earnestly desire that the gifts that edify only individuals will be handled with great self-restraint so that they do not distract or divide. You see what I'm saying? It's not earnestly desire a gift you don't have. It's earnestly desire when you come together that the right gifts will be manifested. Paul's unusual level of specificity was necessary here because the habit of our flesh is to build up self, not to build up others. Uh, This was not a new problem, and it's not a problem that has gone away with time. (laughs) What he's saying is every bit as relevant to us today as it was when he wrote it. We need to think about these things individually and corporately. We need to prayerfully seek God's gracious work in our midst to correct us when we're off track with these things. Why does Paul spend so much time in this chapter talking about the gifts of tongues and prophecy? I think it's very interesting when we look at how he explains it. What happened when someone spoke in tongues without an interpreter? Well, he says, he says, verse 7 and 8, tongues without interpretation is like a musical instrument that's just producing noise. It's an instrument that's not in tune with the other instruments. It's not playing the same song as the other instruments. In verse 8, he says, For the bugle produces, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In other words, it's a sound that has no purpose. It doesn't accomplish anything, except perhaps for the individual who is uttering the sound. Yes, 
I grant, and Paul grants, that there is a connection in, the, in speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, between the person and God, but not between the person and the other people. That is not something that is fitting for the gathering of the body. Our responsibility is the edification of the body, not of the individual. Okay, so what edifies the body? Well, first, love. 1 Corinthians 13. After all the discussion in chapter 12 about the gifts and the way the gifts are supposed to work together, and no gift is supposed to be emphasized over another. They're all necessary. Paul says at the end of chapter 12, I show you a still more excellent way, and that more excellent way is love. Now turn for a second to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul is talking about, I believe, the gathering of the church as he goes into these several verses. And he says in 12 to 14, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So that's first. Now look at what he says after that. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What does that set of instructions in verse 16 focus on? What are the actions there? What do those actions have in common? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Think about that for just a second. The problem with tongues without interpretation was that there was no shared content. Tongues without interpretation was meaningless, according to Paul, even to the person who was speaking the tongues. It's absolutely fine, according to Paul, for someone to use that gift. He was a big fan of it, verse verse 5, 1 Corinthians 14. But this is all about the Holy Spirit's work to build up the body through the individual gifts. And you know what edifies the body? After the priority of love, good content. Language with meaning. Words that are understood and that are in keeping with the Word. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
when our dear brother Leonard came up here last week knowing that he was about to go into hours of surgery and to endure three months of difficult recovery, and he sang that beautiful hymn about his personal confidence in the faithfulness of God, the unwavering faithfulness of God, guys, I was edified. And I suspect you were as well. And there's a special kind of edification that comes into play when you add the music to the words. It appeals to the heart. It appeals to the memory. Those are the things that we're supposed to be doing for each other. It's interesting that in two passages, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, that talk about what we do when we come together, they both talk about singing. Music's good. It's supposed to have content. It's not one without the other. Now, this isn't some kind of formula. God gives us a whole lot of liberty about how we structure any given meeting of the church and how much we structure our meetings. But he gets pretty specific when it comes to requiring that our worship be filled with right content. Again, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, the same verse that said, let all things be done for edification. It says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue with an interpretation doesn't work if it doesn't have an interpretation. What do those things have in common? Content. Propositional truth in the form of actual words that are understood by actual people. We know from some of the Psalms that they were sung by the people of Israel with musical accompaniment in the form of many different kinds of instruments. But what part of that whole experience of corporate worship did God see fit to preserve through the ages? The music? No. The words. Do you think God couldn't create a way to codify music that would last through the ages? Sure he could. But he didn't. Because the music was a vehicle, not an end in itself. I don't want to belabor this, but it is important, guys. <laughs> There are many gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 that are not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14. The ones in chapter 14 that are front and center all have to do with content. And the ones that are discouraged in chapter 14 are the ones that get in the way of it. Chapter 12 mentions other gifts like healings, helps, administrations, miracles. Why aren't those mentioned in chapter 14? Because chapter 14 is talking about the meeting of the church. It's talking about what we do when we're all together. There are many gifts that can be exercised very well outside the gathering of the, the church. And they build up the body in critically important ways, but they don't fit in the framework of what happens in the church. All right, so how does all of this affect the body of believers known as Community Bible Chapel? Our struggle is not manifest in all the same ways that the struggle of the Corinthian believers was, right? We don't have a whole lot of trouble with people standing up and speaking in unintelligible languages in the middle of our worship meetings. It's not like we need to get rid of one of the two podiums because men keep coming up here and talking over each other. We tend to have the opposite problem. We're trying to get men to come up and participate, <laughs> especially young ones. 
And except on the rare occasions when I'm on the music team, we don't have a lot of discordant sounds coming from the stage. We don't have the same set of problems that the church at Corinth had, but if we walk away thinking that that means this passage is not relevant to us, we make a serious mistake. 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I know I'll step on some toes, but Paul did, so what the heck. I think a schedule on the back of a bulletin that many people don't bother to pay any attention to is a source of confusion, not of peace. And as I think back on the reasons I've heard from various individuals over many years for doing something that somebody else in the body found to be a point of concern, the most common element in those justifications is I was just following the Spirit's leading. One person might say, Oh, I know the Lord's Supper isn't generally an appropriate time for correction and exhortation. It's a time to remember Jesus and to honor Him. But the Spirit impressed on me that what that other guy had said earlier in the service needed to be corrected. And if someone didn't get up and correct it quickly, who knows what people would have walked away thinking. I was just doing what I believed the Spirit would have me do. Or another one might say, Well, I know the bulletin says it was time for the offering, but I was convinced that the Spirit wanted me to say these things. And yeah, I know it took ten minutes and it consumed the whole prayer time, but who am I to quench the Spirit? How do you argue with that? Is there anybody here who wants to go toe-to-toe with the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. So what we do is we just backpedal and we say, okay, I understand. We have to be willing to let the Spirit take us places we haven't planned to go. But is that how Paul handled his response to what was going on in the church at Corinth? You think Paul wasn't having to deal with that kind of argument? When a guy who was freely speaking in tongues during the meeting of the body with no interpreter was confronted? You think Paul never heard the argument, well, I was just following the lead of the Holy Spirit? Who am I to get in the Spirit's way? And Paul, who are you to get in the Spirit's way? Or when a man in the same church was uttering words of prophecy at the same time as another guy, or when his words of prophecy were put to the test by those with the gift of uh, distinguishing spirits, and found to be wanting, found not to line up with Scripture, don't you think some of them might have pulled out the Holy Spirit card and said, I'm just doing it because I'm following His lead. We need to let this important text speak for itself and we need to think about how it's speaking to us. Paul was telling the saints at Corinth that not Every legitimate manifestation of the Spirit in the life of an individual believer is appropriate in the meeting of the church. If you don't think that's what he's saying, I would encourage you to look again. (laughs) Those manifestations of the Spirit that are appropriate in this context are the ones that build up the body, not the individual. In short, Paul is very directly telling believers here 
to apply certain constraints to the exercise of their spiritual gifts. Not because those gifts are not of God, not because they are illegitimate gifts, but because the unconstrained exercise of those gifts serves the individual rather than the body. Ephesians 5.21 says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And it's in the same passage that talks about us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other and building each other up. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ in us as one body with one head. And everything that we do is to his glory. I'm as guilty as anyone else about giving myself too much credit for knowing what the Holy Spirit wants to do with the meeting of the church. And I have violated the very things that I'm saying sometimes. But as my dear mother made clear to me when I was four years old, two wrongs don't make a right. How about if all of us make an effort to do better instead of not justifying one wrong with another? There are two straightforward bedrock questions that we need to apply to everything we do when we come together. Is it loving and does it build up the body? A couple of other toes to squish. When only 25% of those who will attend any given meeting of this church are actually here when the meeting starts, does that build up the body? If you come most Sundays to get revitalized in your own personal walk, but you're doing nothing to minister to others in the body, does that build up the body or does it build up you? The number one question to ask when you walk in the doors of a new church is how would God put me to use in this body? Not how will God meet my needs? I don't want to end on a negative note. (laughs) So I'll close with better words. Words that keep the focus where it belongs, and I read them a minute ago. I'm going to read them again. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Look at how this is laid out. It's really great because it leads with love. It leads with patience, with humility, with gentleness. So whatever beefs we have with each other, even about the very things that, that we've been looking at this morning, we've got to lead with love. Verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God. Colossians 3.12. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect glue of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him 
to God the Father. Dear Father, we pray, we pray that you would impress these things on us, that we would get it, we would understand what you're talking about here, Lord, and we would understand how it applies in this, in this church. When we meet, and also when we come together in other contexts. Lord, work in us so that we will minister powerfully in submission to the head, Jesus Christ, that his work will go on through this local church, that people will see what's going on here, they will see what we're doing in our community, and they will be drawn to him because we're doing it his way, not our way. We pray this in his precious name.